Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. This is me, Steffi Cohen. And Hayden Bo. And today we have the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Charlie Dixon. He is a doctor in physical therapy, a strength coach and pain and rehab clinician for Barbell Medicine, and he's an IPF Junior World Champion. Today we sit down and talk about the importance of vulnerability in a world full of highlight reels. Charlie shares his battle with depression, suicide ideation, binge eating, and how he's found ways to not only cope with it, but overcome it. We talk about fear and doubt as a competitive athlete, choosing not to practice as a physical therapist, and our responsibility of bridging the gap between theory and practice. This episode is brought to you by Stay Classy Meats. Stay Classy has partnered with Hybrid to give you guys 10% off your next order if you use the code HYBRID in all caps. Stay Classy Meats curates quality specialty meats from small batch ranchers and processors across the Northern Rockies and deliver them straight to your door. So if you want to support the show and Hybrid across the board, make sure to use our code HYBRID in all caps to get 10% off your next order, Stay Classy Meats. If you want to be entered to potentially win some Are you stealing free, my part? I mean, you were, you were in your phone. No, I mean, take it away. You're doing great. If you want to get a chance <laughs> of winning some free hybrid legacy swag, which is the swaggiest swag that you can ever get in your life, uh, make sure to screenshot this episode, tag Hybrid Unlimited, tag Charlie, tag Steffi Cohen and Hayden Bo, and tell us what you liked about it. And that will enter you for to win something. Maybe. As always. Something guys, from what? Huh? From, something from Hyde Legacy. Oh, you said that. Never yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, pay attention. You're I in am your drifting, phone. I'm drifting in and out. Stop drifting. All right. It, and definitely, if you're drifting, don't come at me. <laughs> All right? Fair, fair point. I'm so sick. Huh? I'm so sick. What do you mean? Sick with it. Oh, I fell right into that one. No. Okay, as always, wow, uh, thank you guys for listening. Just sit back, enjoy this amazing episode of Hybrid Unlimited. What, what do you say, imitation? Imitation crab. Well, because that describes perfectly what it is. What, what well, why does say? it? Why does this, this particular fish have to imitate something else? Why can't it just be its own fish? Well, because no one. It's probably a, a marketing thing, right? Like, like the same way they change names of undesirable fish to make. I actually watched the whole thing on something similar, where they take. They had a bunch of examples of these really gross-sounding fish names. Remarketed them as like some sort of fancy-sounding halibut. Oh, yeah, we watched Remember? that. Where was that from? And then they just sold the shit out of it. Yeah, where was that from? Because it sounded way more appealing. Than, sorry? Where was it from? Could have been an Adam Ruins Everything episode, possibly. Oh, yeah. But, um, yeah. But so, for imitation crab, it's easy because you're like, oh, do you like crab? Like, that title summarizes... Person who likes crab but doesn't want to pay a ton of money for crab, this is for you. It's like Walmart crab. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But you get, even you go to like a sushi restaurant, majority of the time, the stuff with crab in it mm -hmm. is imitation crab. I don't think I like it, the concept. Like if, if someone, if, if someone would have come up, <laughs> if I'm an investor and someone would have come up to me with the idea of selling imitation crab, of selling white fish, this guy's does imitation crab, I would have been like, Nah. But what if it solved the a problem that existed anyways? Like, let's say they're hunting for tuna. I'm making this up completely. Okay? Exactly. So it doesn't apply. Hold on, but completely on. arbitrary let's, let, let me, argument. Let Not me. interested. <laughs> Not interested. No, come on. Let me. Let me just. Let's Next play out the topic. We're gonna play out the scenario. So I let's know. say you're hunt, You're fishing Please for sir. tuna. Okay, in big nets or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
and you're accidentally scooping up all of these other fish and nobody wants to buy all these fish. All of a sudden, fish. the guy is an expert fisherman. Go on. <laughs> hey, I, I went out with Black Tip H. I saw exactly how it's done. <laughs> um, and then you have all these extra fish. Now, what are you going to do? Nobody wants them because it's an undesirable fish. Right. So Instead of not selling them, let's make an imitation crab. I'm sure that kind of thing happens all the time. Okay. You want to go into the imitation crab business with me? No. <laughs> Sorry about that, Charlie. I, I dig it. I feel like most of our intros are like that. Yeah. So you start. Yeah, because it breaks the ice. You know what I mean. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Now you feel a <laughs> lot more comfortable, those, uh, right? Like icebreakers when you were in undergrad or PT school. I hate, hate ice. I hate I forced icebreakers because this is a casual icebreaker. Yeah. You know, just yeah. warming up for a casual conversation. But when you sit down in a circle and you What's say the word icebreaker. Food? It becomes immediately <laughs> lame, you know? Let's go in a circle and everyone say your name, your Three last name. facts about yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are always the worst. I like to lift heavy things and put them down. <laughs> <laughs> Up and down, those are two separate things. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast. Welcome. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate the hospitality. The setup you guys have is absolutely incredible. Charlie, move the parrot so I can look at you in the eye when you talk. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Perfect. that's a lot better. Yeah. Can you see him now? Yeah, I can. Okay, good. Excellent. Um, I think it's awesome that you're here. So Charlie actually sent me a direct message. We had been, you know, we're friendly with each other on Instagram. We never like um, anything like too deep we spoke about. But Charlie replied to one of my one of my posts from December or so um, where I was talking about my change in, in, I guess, athletic careers, my struggle with like identity, struggle with back pain. And he said that it resonated with him. And we had a cool conversation. I was like, yeah, whenever you want, like you can come to Miami, doors are open. He's like, how's next week? And I'm like, perfect. <laughs> and he actually showed up. I have a lot of respect for people like that because a lot of people talk, you know, yep. say they're going to do all these things and never do. So when someone actually follows through to me is, it means a lot. So I Thank love that you. you're here. Yeah. That's funny. We were just talking about earlier when I went down to MASH and Matt, it's, it was the same thing. Like people talk, right? I went down for uh, winter break when you're in undergrad and I was like, yeah, he's like, come back in the summer. I'm like, for sure. I'll come for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. And in his head, he's like, this guy's full of shit, you know? And then I actually showed up and was there for the whole summer. He was, mm -hmm. And when I got there, he was literally like, oh, I didn't think you were being serious because mm -hmm. the amount of people who do that is everybody. Yeah. yeah. So Charlie, let's, let's start there. Like Let's talk a little bit about kind of what inspired you to come to hybrid and that conversation that we had. So specifically at that time period, so back in December, that was a pretty low point for me. Um, I've been dealing with this low back injury on and off since uh, got really bad in May last year. Just, uh, hit a Paul squat PR. I was 625 for three. I wake up the next morning. And there's numbness and tingling down the back of my right leg. I can't do a calf raise on my right side. And Was it pretty acute? Like you felt it right when you were doing the squat? I didn't feel anything. Just afterwards it started. It, yeah, it felt completely fine. Even that evening, I felt fine. It's when I woke up the next morning. It, it was debilitating. Um, wow. And that lasted for quite some time. Um, Derek uh, with Barbell Medicine, he... I started working with him and because he had been through a very similar injury before so he could relate to me and kind of walk me through it. It was just a very basic protocol. You know, I was uh, doing uh, some very light tempo squats, higher rep work uh, to keep loading pretty light, you know, within a week 
and still training upper body and everything. I got pretty close to baseline. You know, I was squatting 600 pounds again back in uh, September, I think. I might be a little off with my timelines here, but um, it was around October. Um, I had another really bad flare up, just another run of the mill squat session. Again, and didn't feel it till later. This one, I was doing a safety squat bar and it was like the fifth rep of the six rep set. It felt like I, I strained my upper quad. So I just racked the weight. I was real stiff. Didn't think anything out. I thought I just strained a muscle. I wake up the next morning and now I have radiating symptoms down my left quad along with weakness. So if I would go up and down a step, my knee would buckle. And I, wow. I remember I went to the gym and tried to do like a leg extension. There was a huge discrepancy side to side. So that was another low point for me. And it's like, why me? You, you know, you, you get really, really low in those times. And fast forward to December, had a really bad breakup at that time. Um, my brother, who has always been my role model uh, growing up, um, you know, we, we had some falling out um, earlier that year just going different paths and things. And, and he was in special forces. He's a, he's a green beret. He's a veteran. Um, and you know, that's when I reached out to Steffi. Uh, that post you made, um, really resonated with me. Uh, just the identity part, you know, you, you go through an injury and, uh, when you're an athlete, your entire life, like it, it's hard to, to separate yourself from that. It's like, who am I without this thing? Mm -hmm. And, um, especially if it's not your decision, right? Yeah. It's, it's different yeah. to retire because you've accomplished what you want to accomplish or because you're moving on to the next thing in your life. And it's different to be forced out of a sport because of, of an injury that you don't know how to manage or how to get out of. Yeah, it, exactly. And I, I remember I had just uh, finished handling one of my lifters at her meet, uh, Shout out to Elise. She went nine for nine in that beat. Mm -hmm. um, absolutely, absolutely crushed it. She came back from her own uh, surgery and came back to the platform. And that, that was awesome to be there for that. But it was on the drive back from there. Um, I, I never reached out to you at that time, but I took inspiration from that post. And um, when you're trapped in your own body, because I've run from a lot of my own demons through exercise, even growing up with wrestling and things like that, it's very easy to stuff a lot of that stuff down, right? It's like, you, you don't want to deal with it. So you just go train. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done my entire life. And now I can't do that anymore. It's like, I'm trapped in my own body. It's like a prison cell. And it's like, you have to do a lot of introspection in that dark place. Um, so I started going back through a lot of traumatic experiences in my life from growing up and um, all the things my brothers went through. And a lot of the posts that I've made since December to March of 2021, and um, for those listening, um, is a reflection of that. You know, um, some of the uh, the darker topics that I approached um, with the binge eating disorder, um, suicide, all those things. I, I shared it all. It's all out there, and. It was very, very difficult for me because it would be easy for me, right? I have the type, the doctor, physical therapy, IPF world champion, summa cum laude, Virginia Tech, valedictorian, and high, like 
great wrestler, all these things. It would be easy for me to just hide behind all these different titles and things and act and go around like, oh, I'm perfect. Everything's fine, you know, mm-hmm. but that's not the truth. How was that received when you opened up? I can't tell you the number of people who messaged me and said either directly or indirectly, you saved my life. Wow. And what we do in this position, it, it has so much of an impact and a ripple effect that sometimes we'll never see, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but that's when I realized like it was worth it, mm-hmm. you know? Because the very first Instagram picture, I, I didn't make an Instagram to like get followers or Insta famous, whatever people talk about. Uh, my very first Instagram picture was posted in May of 2013. It's a picture of me, my little wrestling hoodie. Re- I was, you know, wrestling had ended for me. I was a senior. That was very much my identity since I was in fifth grade. And now that was done. And a lot of those demons with the, uh, you know, the, the body image, body dysmorphia, uh, all that stuff started to creep up. And the picture was me on my pool deck, uh, just in my hoodie. There's no caption. And it was just like, it was a cry for help, you know, because I didn't know how to open up because everyone perceived me as a guy who has everything put together. You know, like I said, I was a co-valedictorian, very successful in wrestling, captain of the football team, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And everyone just assumes, oh, this is Charlie. He's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I was very good at hiding it. My brother and I are very good at hiding our, our demons. And, uh, yeah, you know, I was, I was very, cl- after that picture, I was very close to taking my own life. Um, Steffi, I was talking to you earlier. I, um, re-listened to, uh, Stain Break the Cycle and, uh, that, uh, album in particular, it takes me back to when I was like four or five years old my parents are, are great people. Everyone has issues. And I, I can remember they were, they were having a pretty big fight. And my brother, he took me into his room and uh, put me in his closet and gave me a warm blanket and a CD player because we had CDs back then. Mm-hmm. He put the headphones on me and he's like, don't worry, brother. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And he was always my protector. He's seven years older than me. Um, he was an absolute badass in football. He ran like a four, 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 three, 40 yard dash doing front flips into the end zone. Like he was my idol, my protector. Um, but to, to circle back around to uh, break the cycle, there's a song on there called waste that uh, talks about suicide. Um, it's, it's very dark. And uh, I remember I listened to that song and I imagined he was the one singing the lyrics to me. And it made me take a step back and realize how selfish it, it would be to, to leave him behind, right? After all he's sacrificed, because this is after he had deployed to Afghanistan, he lost some friends, he had been through these traumatic experiences, and um, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. And um, since that day, yeah, I mean, people, it's all on there. People can see <laughs> from that day to now, if you're in that dark place, you can make it. And 
it was very like people who followed closely, you know, I have a bunch of people follow my stories like consistently. They're like, what is this guy doing? Like, this is all like, whoa, that's really dark. And honestly, I don't know where it was coming from. It was just all these repressed emotions just coming up all at once. It's very sporadic, all these different songs and videos. And, um, I just put it all out there, you know? And like I said, I can't tell you the number of people who reached out to me and said, you saved my life. But you know, it wasn't me, you know, I, I, I'm not super religious or whatever. You can call it God, Allah, whatever you believe in. But I do think there's a force that unites all of us. Mm-hmm. That's bigger than all of us. And, um, yeah. That's why I always say, remember we've had this conversation about like people who quote unquote might, you might think overshare on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I explained to you that because, you know, I have I suffer from anxiety and panic attacks. And when you're going through like one of those episodes, like one of those panic attack episodes or anxiety or whatever, or depression, you think you, you think it's never going to end. Like the first thing that comes to your mind is like, am I going to have to live the rest of my life like this? Right. Like, is this going to be my existence going forward? And it's terrifying because you because you, you just want to be normal. You just want to feel normal. You just want to be happy and experience the world yeah. like everyone else does. So sometimes when you see people who are, um, you know, who operate at a very high level, such as yourself, you know, all of the accomplishments that you've been able to amass. And then you see, oh, what well, this person struggles like he has his own struggles, his own insecurities. And you use your social media platform to. To, to share some of that, it gives people hope, right? Because he's setting a, an example of, look, you can be fucked up yeah. and still make something of yourself and still 100%. and still be part of society, contribute to society and still, you know, be a loving father and still be a good friend and still all these things. So you understand a little bit more about yeah, like totally. the impact that it makes. I'm also, we, I'm also interested in how uh, that helps you as well. Because obviously, like you said, you helped a ton of people. Yeah. They reached out to you. But uh, for you, putting all that out there, I'm sure you had mixed feelings, but it sounds like it was an overall positive experience. Did you ever feel like being perceived as weak, especially as an athlete or, or you know, a strong guy in in, in the industry that you're in? I felt a lot of different things, um, especially in my different roles that that I play. Um, Like I might be misrepresenting, you know, the brands and stuff like that. Um, but I felt like this, this is, it feels like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. Like I've been carrying this stuff around for my entire life. Um, maybe that is why I'm so driven and disciplined. Like when my brother left for Afghanistan and people can go look at the letter I wrote in undergrad to describe that day. Um, it, it, it changed me cause I was a sophomore in high school and, when he left, it's like he sacrificed that his team sacrificed some of them, their lives. And, you know, that put me on this path and no matter what gets in my way, I'm going to keep going. Cause my brother did the same thing and he's still here, you know, and I wanted him to remember how awesome he is and remind him of the, the badass that he is, you know, like I, I felt like he lost touch with that side of himself and, like I said, there would not be a Charlie Dixon without a Steven Dixon. There wouldn't be a 100%. And, um, 
I'm sorry, I forgot what your original question was. But, well, uh, um, what was it? Uh, I was just curious about how, how posting helped you, like making those oh, posts, and, those and, vulnerable yeah. posts. And whether you know or not you felt weak doing so. I did. Yeah, I experienced, I felt, you know, weakness or that part about oversharing. <laughs> <laughs> this dog is ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Go on. <laughs> he has one more. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was very uncomfortable for me. You know, it's like... Um, I, it's like transformers, right? Like you hop in this big robot and people just see this big badass robot. And then you like, you step out and it's just like, Oh, it's just little Charlie. Mm -hmm. You know, uh -huh. it's like, I'm naked, like very vulnerable mm -hmm. and that's nerve wracking. Um, and I've dealt with that, the anxiety and the depression and, and so many different things in my life. Like it was very uncomfortable for me mm -hmm. to do that. But like I said, just like people like you, Steffi and what you guys are doing and, I, I've taken inspiration from so many different people, guys like Dominic Cruz in, in uh, the UFC. He's uh -huh. very vulnerable. Um, and I've looked to a lot of his stuff for like sports psychology and how to overcome injury. And um, he talks a lot about this topic of being vulnerable and embracing that side. And uh, all these different people who have had, had an influence on me either directly or indirectly um, really led to that moment. And I want to give credit to all those people um, because you, you played a role in saving someone's life. Mm-hmm. That's that's powerful. I want to go back to um, talking about body dysmorphia. I yeah. find it interesting because usually it's mainly girls that talk about their eating disorders, body dysmorphia, but um, it happens to guys too. And it's it's obviously I think being competing in a weight restricted sport at a young age I think plays a big role. Big time, right? Like having to be a certain weight class and look a certain way and that pressure. What um. What was going on in your mind, like at that at that time, that kind of like led you to to start having binge eating disorder? It, it goes back to my childhood when I really examined it, because um, you know when there was conflict in the home, and my brother would, you know, we, what we found comfort in were video games and food. That was like our comfort, right? Um, and some of my best memories are just being in my brother's room and we're playing like Metal Gear Solid or Resident Evil or, and we're eating like <laughs> little Debbie cakes and all this stuff, right? So I think it kind of, I always found comfort in food. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I was very a very small kid growing up. Uh, I wrestled at 103 pounds my freshman year. And um, I cut, I was cutting down from like 115, 116 pounds. I'm already real skinny, right? And, you know, that's a lot of weight to cut. So um, just just to make sure, what was the original question? I want to get it to off track. It was, um, what was going on in your mind, like, psychologically, that led to you developing the bench eating? I think it was the repeated weight cuts. Um, you know. You still felt fat, even oh, when yeah. you were 103 yeah. pounds. Yeah. Isn't that insane? Yeah. So I, I can remember like I would go out to eat like to my friend's house and uh, his parents would take us out to eat to, to like a, a nice restaurant and I, I'd be eating like a, a hamburger and some fries or something. I remember like after every bite, I would check to make sure my abs are still there. Right. And I'm like, I'm, I've always been really lean objectively. Mm -hmm. I know that, but it's like, oh no, I'm getting fat after every bite. And especially as a guy, like, you know, being in like a macho, like masculine, like football wrestling, like you can't talk about this stuff, mm -hmm. you know, or you will get perceived as weak. And, um, Oh yeah. The change room is ruthless. Yeah. You don't expose yeah. any weakness in there. Yeah, exactly. So you, you kind of just stuff it down, you know, you pretend not, or I would like, 
after wrestling tournament, I come home and my parents are asleep. I'd sneak in the kitchen and eat a whole tub of uh, Briar's ice cream, uh, eat uh, like little Debbie cakes and all this stuff, like four or 5,000 calories. I would make like, if we didn't have a lot of stuff, I'd like take icing for like cake icing and eat a whole thing of that and put it on like some bread and just make weird stuff. Right. And then after you do that, you just feel like a piece of shit. You look in the mirror like, dude, you're, you're fat, you're and all this stuff. And it, you go into this negative spiral and now you're like 10 pounds overweight for your, you know, and you're four days out from your next meet. So what do you do? You just put on a trash bag. I would put on a trash bag, like poke my head and arms to it, put on a long sleeve under armor t-shirt. So it's nice and snug to my skin. Um, I would do the same thing for my legs, put on like tights, sweatpants and go run around for like hours. I would sleep in it Wow. sometimes, you know, and it was, it was a very vicious cycle. Does powerlifting trigger any of that since it's also a weight restricted sport? That's a good question. So, uh, with powerlifting, that's one of the reasons I decided to go with powerlifting. Cause Hey, when we were talking earlier, like I enjoyed the, this training aspect more so than the wrestling at that time after my senior year, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, I really just love strength training and bodybuilding. So when I got to college, I, I learned there was a sport for, for lifting weights. So I was like, Oh shit. Shout out to Johnny Candido, man. You have a great YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. It kind of brought me into the sport. And <laughs> I started, uh, I started powerlifting and I was, when I first got to college, I was like 160 pounds and Virginia tech, they have some great dining halls. Right. So I, I got up to like 180, 181. And I just walked around. I, I competed at 181 for my very first powerlifting meet. So there wasn't much weight cutting. Um, when I did starting start to fill out the weight class, especially in the IPF, two-hour weigh-ins, all that stuff, um, it really didn't take a toll on me because I feel like there was some maturity there. Mm-hmm. I started to fill some gaps, um, and I started to learn some different lessons. Like I said, I I realized I had an issue, so. For me, like I would go to the internet, to YouTube, and study guys, especially combat sports. I've always been fascinated with so, um, the guys like Dominic Cruz and these different people who had an influence on me and how to deal with some of these demons that I was running from. So it really didn't affect me nearly as much once I transitioned to powerlifting. Is more when I was much younger with wrestling and didn't have a lot of the, the knowledge or experience on how to deal with some of this emotional stuff that I was experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. But um, let's talk about let's talk about your career. I find yeah. that interesting as well. So you did exercise science for your undergrad. Yep. Over at Virginia Tech. Human nutrition, foods, and exercise. This is a mouthful, but uh, yeah. he went to school with um Sly. Yep. Oh really? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yeah, Joey's said, a great guy. Yeah, we just had him on the podcast. Yeah. The other yeah. Day. <laughs> Super nice guy. Small world, eh? Yeah, it is. Very oh, small. What world. the hell? Smaller you guys are in the same day. class? Yep. That's interesting. Um. So yeah, so you did that, and then what made you go to PT school? So it was one of those things where, you know, you you go to undergrad, and everyone's like, you know, what what do you want to do when you graduate or whatever? I was like, "Uh, I guess I'll just do PT. You know, I just kind of like picked it or whatever, and plus I was getting injured all the time, right? So I wanted to figure out how to deal with injuries a little bit better, mm-hmm. and I was passionate about strength training and stuff, and you know, there were, there were guys like Quinn Hanock and people who were kind of blending the two, and they, they sort of served as models for me of what I wanted to do. Um, so early on, I kind of knew I wanted to be able to blend strength and conditioning with the, the rehab side of things. 
That makes sense. What? Why did you get into it? Why did Actually, I? Actually, yours is very. Yours is a very different approach. <laughs> it was like your mom was like, "You got to do something that puts a doctor in front of your name." And then Pretty you, much. You picked from that. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. It was my mom forcing me to go to graduate school. <laughs> I really didn't want to, especially back then, because I was doing weightlifting and I w- wanted to just train all the time. I wanted to really try to go to the Olympics and, you know, my mom. But I, I, I respect that. I appreciate it. I think it's it's important to have a plan B. And it's yeah. always it, it always helps when you have options, especially, man, you, you never know what's going to happen. If you're just an athlete, you put all your eggs in that basket and then yeah. you get hurt or something else happens, you can't compete. And then what? Well, that's yeah. the identity thing you were just talking about. Yeah. Exactly. I even on, on a lesser level, I was telling you early, earlier, Charlie, I, I switched to powerlifting because of injury and I never had really, I had had injuries in other sports, um, like, like soccer and you know, whatever regular bro had broken my leg and some other stuff. But, uh, for me, weightlifting was the first sport that I went back to after I left the, like the house. So there was no influence of my parents. It was no influence of anybody. Mm-hmm. It was just me deciding I wanted to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So I think for that reason, it became a really big part of my identity. And then when I was injured, I was like, now I'm just a fucking guy. <laughs> I was hating the weightlifter. Now I'm just a guy. Just a guy. You it was really, that? sorry. How'd you overcome that? Uh, I am like a serial optimist, like to the point where it annoys her. So, um, Honestly, that was the first real time in my life where I felt challenged to be optimistic um, <clears throat> just because it felt like so long. The yeah. the process, I didn't have surgery on it, but I had uh, PRP and I took it very seriously. I followed all the re- recommendations of the doctor. I had a great one. I had uh, Dr. Gallia at the Gallia Clinic in Toronto. Um, and I, it was like a year before I was back, you know, and this I went from something that I was doing literally every single day that that I got immediate uh, fulfillment from to yeah. not being able to do it at all. So that was the first time I really struggled with it. And I, uh, I mean, I struggled, I tried to be optimistic, but there was times I little literally cried just because I was like, so frustrated. I couldn't do the thing that I did. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, I think, so there's actually a couple things that got me through it. One, I was just an absolute, uh, gear whore for like, uh, like a, that whole period, I was just buying weightlifting stuff, like yeah. new shoes and knee sleeves Even and though all the things. Wearing? Cause I was just, it kept me like, it kept me going. Like when I get back, like it was like me telling myself that I'm going to get back soon. Yeah. You know, like it's close enough that if I, I'm just going to get all this stuff so that I'm ready when I, <laughs> when it's time to go, you know? And I just amassed like this collection, ridiculous collection of workout stuff. Um, and then the other thing was having like an actual plan. Uh, so I, I was telling you earlier about that as well. I switched to powerlifting and that was a decision that actually I sort of, I made like halfway through the um, the process. Like I, I had a friend, Francesco, who yeah. was doing powerlifting and we were such like snobs in weightlifting at the time. It was like powerlifting is the sport for the guys who can't do weightlifting. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's like kind of how we thought about it. Yeah. And then um, he was getting so damn strong. And I'm like, man, I've been doing weightlifting my whole life. And this guy's already squatting more than me and, you know, deadlifting more than me. So I was like, I, I didn't like that. And I was competitive and we used to train together. So I was like, all right, I'll do that with him. And then I tied that sort of in with the fact that 
that was going to be a way for me to protect myself against injury when I returned to weightlifting. Just having a surplus of strength. I looked at a lot of the other weightlifting, uh, uh, like top weightlifting countries, and started realizing like 77 kilo lifters in like weightlifters in like China and Russia, they're squatting like 320 kilos, mm-hmm. you know? And then, so snatching 170, cleaning 200 kilos, like that's not beating the crap out of their body the way we over here in, in America, Canada, like all the Commonwealth or most, a lot of the Commonwealth countries uh, train, which is snatch and clean and jerk, usually very heavy. And then the strength movements are like an afterthought. Whereas I, I sort of like just through all of those different experiences started realizing that it's like, like riding a bike. Yeah. Once you know how to ride a bike, there are ways you can improve your cardio and your, your work capacity without actually being on that bike. Yep. And it's the same with snatch and clean and jerk. It's like, I have my technique dialed in. If I get a stronger squat, if I get a stronger deadlift, if I can press more, if I can do these things, I'm going to lift more in snatch and clean and jerk. Yep. So to circle back to what the question was, it was more just like having having a plan, thinking about it, and convincing myself that I would get back to where I wanted to be. That sort of got me through that whole period. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's been a little bit different. I think <clears throat> when I was faced when I was faced with that injury, my lower back, and I just didn't know if I was gonna look. I knew I knew I could go back to powerlifting, but I but I didn't know, and still really don't know if I can if I can compete at the same level or above like if i can continue breaking world records for I don't example know, you look pretty good the other day i did look pretty good the <laughs> other day you know but it's still it's uncertain right yeah. it's the uncertainty what 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 brings you down it's not knowing what the future holds right and what brings up the anxiety and what brings up the the negative self talk etc yeah. so i think for me it was i realized that you have to and it's not only about a, having a plan, but it's having other things that interest you and other things that you can use to identify yourself with and Absolutely. other things that you can pivot into. So that's when I was like, man, outside of lifting, like, what do I enjoy doing? And I, I've had this being been asked to me on podcasts and I guess I just brushed it off and completely forgot that I didn't have like a really good answer for that. But yeah, I mean, I had nothing else outside of outside of uh, powerlifting that really, really interests me. Yeah. So that's when I started getting more into fashion design, getting more into music, drums. I bought my drums, bought a skateboard back then, even uh, knitting, sewing. knitting, yeah. sewing, like just being more creative with my hands, learning how to draw. I, bu- I bought a bunch of like uh, like caricature books to learn paint whatever you know just just trying to find other stuff that that i that i didn't have to rely on on my on my body to do yeah that i could always do fall into and and enjoy if if i couldn't be an athlete tomorrow yeah. for whatever reason okay i want to take a second here just to give another shout out to our sponsor state classy meets these guys we've been using them for quite some time now actually long before they were uh, a sponsor on the show and they make some of the best stuff that I have ever had. And unlike a lot of meat companies that keep it pretty basic, you can have freaking Wagyu burgers, tomahawk steaks. You can think of it, they have it, and that can arrive straight to your door. Uh, Stay classy, sources from ranchers who are for the animals, which means they allow the animals to graze in a stress-free environment. And if you know anything about hunting or uh, eating meat in general, 
that is super important to the quality and the taste of the meat. Stay Classy is also committed to keeping their meat hormone and antibiotic free. So when you get this meat, you know you're just getting meat. You know exactly what's in it. They cater to athletes who require the best quality products to put in their body. Nutrition is the base of our existence. The better the quality of the inputs, the less stressed out our bodies will be, and the more efficient it will run. They are all about quality, convenience, and small batch. So definitely check these guys out. Like I said, they make the best stuff. Code HYBRID in all caps will get you guys 10% off. So try some bougie burgers, try some other awesome meat, and uh, enjoy. Enjoy a little discount on us. All right, now let's get back to the episode. Thank you guys for listening. It's huge. And you, then you did eventually find something physical that you were able to do at 100% intensity without bothering the, the injury that you had, mm-hmm. which was boxing. boxing. Yeah. yeah. So, it, so I think that's people, what people what people forget to do and I call it discovery phases and you, I think you have to go through several of them in your lifetime. You know, every X amount of years you're going to have to, to a certain degree, reinvent yourself either because you achieved everything that you could have achieved in that particular area, either because you have identified areas that you're falling short, you know, you're, you're not that good at and you just can't compete or you lost interest, whatever it is. Um, so it's going through those discovery phases and, and putting yourself putting putting yourself in a in in a vulnerable position and 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 being a, a beginner at something yes. and starting over, yeah. you know, and, and just looking for what what is the thing what is the next thing that you can do. And for the longest time, you know how I talk about skills, talents and passions. Mm-hmm. So I was talking to a friend of mine, Armando, the other day, and he introduced me to it's this Japanese mentality. Which is very similar. Dexter, stop whining. <laughs> it's this very, uh, it's a very similar way of of kind of choosing your path. Very similar to what I just described, but they say that in order. So when you're going through those discovery phases, you should essentially look for something that that you can check these four boxes to the best of your ability or the way I see it is kind of like a chart that has those four bars and you're just trying to kind of like fill them up as evenly as possible so essentially you got to find something that you love Mm -hmm. something that people need yeah something that you can get paid for and something that you're good at so it's those four four things four things and essentially you're just trying to balance those four the best that you can yeah when you're looking for what that next thing might be and in that comes like the whole topic of like how we were raised and our parents telling us, oh, just, you know, you got to do what you love. Yep. I'm just going to support you. Do what you love. Do what you love. But that's not what it's all about. Right. Because then you do what you love and then people don't want to pay you for that. And then you're yeah. broke. And then what do you do? Exactly. exactly. I don't know how we got into that, but. Oh, yeah. Just making sure that you have like something to something to pivot into something, that, something that at least like interests you to do outside of what your main sport is yeah Yeah, i think that's important yeah for for a long time like uh i I struggled with that you know with wrestling that was my identity and that was taken away and then i switched it to powerlifting and in the beginning you know it was a perfect outlet because i had all this anger and repressed emotion i could just go super hard with that and it wasn't until i started getting injured that i was like you might need to rethink some of this, you know, and I'm a very stubborn person and I would just keep, keep pushing through and keep pushing through. And, uh, 
really some of my best performances when I really started to turn a corner was uh, in uh, USAPL Raw Nationals 2017, Orlando. Um, that's when I really just started in the buildup to that meet because I competed at the Arnold 2016. I won it that year, first time. Following year 2017 in March, I, I got third. I had a terrible meet and I was so caught up in what everyone else was doing and I put so much pressure on myself to go and perform at this high level. And I just, you know, it would play out in my training. I would push too hard and get injured and not be able to perform like I want to. In the build up to that meet in 2017 nationals in October, I just, I let go of that, like needing to win to, to feel like, you know, I'm not a loser. Like I was like, you have to realize you're more than just your sport. You know, Mm -hmm. if you invest all your, you know, love and focus and passion into this one thing, it's like, you have to sound cheesy, but it's like you, you turn it back on yourself and you learn to love yourself without those things, you know, and that's really been a big and it's still a work in progress for me. Right. But that's been a, a turning point for me um, is realizing that regardless of how you perform in these meets, you're still a good person. And it takes so much pressure off, mm-hmm. you know, same thing with the boxing stuff, right? Like you mentioned being able to pivot. Like I saw you were doing the boxing and like, I was like, that looks cool. I want to try it. <laughs> so I'll go down to my best friend's house down the street from since childhood. And he has a punching bag. I'm like, dude, let's hit the bag. You know, <laughs> my brother came down and we're all just in the, in the garage, just punching the fucking bag, man. <laughs> Listen to some hardcore music. Like it was so much fun. And I, I posted up some of my boxing footage and I got some good feedback. I got some feedback. Oh, it's sloppy. It's, you know, you get a piece of a, a boxing fight. expert. It's Everyone's a boxing expert now. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, I took some, there was some good feedback there and it, that, that's what I love is that process and starting something new and the learning process of it. Right. Um, so that's been, been really fun too. Um, I'm going to have him hit the mitts with me. Later yeah, I, I'm, oh, cool. I'm, I'm stoked. Yeah, maybe stoked. I'll spar him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who are you sparring today? Carolina. Carolina? Yeah. Oh, dude, you're in for a treat. I, I'm excited. that sparring yeah. session. She's uh, like, you. She they've turned it up a notch in her sparring. So she's in there with girls. Like Carolina is, what are her? World her champion. Two-time world champion and yeah. Olympian for Argentina. Yeah. Yeah, she's in there banging. She looks like she belongs. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool to see. You had a nice bloody nose last time. Last two times. Last two times. Yeah, dude, I'm a fucking. Boxer. Oh well, I hate yeah. to say it, it's probably gonna happen again because you just made like opened it up a couple of days ago. Yeah. So sick. Nice. This time, sport. make sure you take a picture, please. All right. Before you wipe it. <laughs> Have you gotten more comfortable with the sparring? Yeah, a lot more comfortable. Yeah. A lot more comfortable. Oh yeah, now she just eats them. <laughs> but it wasn't even about the punches. It's about it's about the strategy because. You have to be like three or four moves ahead of the other person. If and you have to have you have to go into it with a plan that you have to execute. So, for example, this is what's so interesting to me going into boxing because you look at it without knowing and you're just like, oh, this is just like two people like scrapping, you know, just Mm -hmm. throwing punches at each other. But when you look at it carefully and dissect it, you see like, say, for example, the first especially if it's like a 12 rounder or something with a lot of rounds you see the first couple of rounds that both people are just feeling feeling themselves out right you're trying to see how the other person moves how they react to your feints what are like the some of the combinations that they're throwing do they throw a lot of jabs do they throw what do they block do they parry you're gathering information you're looking at their bodies at their facial expression 
right? And then, and then you have a plan that you have to execute. So going into either a spar or a fight, there's a certain, a limited amount of combinations that you've been practicing with the intention of putting it together either in a spar or in a match. And you're just pretty much looking for the perfect moment to, to do that. So for yeah. example, say that you've been practicing a, um, slipping a jab to the right and going with a, or slipping a jab to the left and going with a, with an overhand hook yeah. on, the, on the right. For example, you're just waiting for that one jab. And sometimes it might take you a full 30 seconds, a full minute to just wait for that singular jab so you can throw that, that right overhand, right? Or whatever it might be. Like you have a plan of, okay, I'm going to go one to the head, one to the body, one to the head with a hook. And you're just waiting, waiting, waiting so you can do that and yeah. then get out. So there's a lot of strategy involved in planning, which I think it's cool. And, and it's something that I have gotten a lot more comfortable with. Because before, whenever, I don't know, I didn't have any plan. I just didn't know what to do or when to do. I, I know what to do, not when to do it. Mm -hmm. Now I'm getting better at knowing when to do what. And you know what? All the responses should be to things that other people throw, right? Yeah. yeah. Like someone goes for a body shot, you can block, uppercut. Like you know that there's certain. Yeah, I'm definitely piecing it together, which is super <laughs> exciting. It's super exciting. Yeah. And then it's it's awesome because all of these things start, start coming at you automatically yeah like for example anytime that you block a body shot with your right you know that you're gonna have to throw a right uppercut for example or you block if you block here with your if you do if you block with your left then you're gonna throw a right hook or if you block down on your body shot with a left you're gonna throw a right uppercut and then a cross or whatever yeah. and all these like little things that you practice uh that you that you practice during your during training come out automatically because you've done them so many times yeah and it's cool when when you actually put it together on the on the ring. I thought something that was really cool that you said was that you felt your brain save. Uh, uh yeah. Um, like a movement. What was it? Yeah, it was. So, when you're practicing on the mitts or with your coach, it there, the threat isn't there of getting hit. Mm -hmm. So you don't really realize. You know, you're going through the same drill over and over again. So one that we do a lot is blocking a body shot, a, a right uppercut. Blocking a body shot, left uppercut. Body shot, left uppercut. Like that, a million times. Yeah. And I've had never been able to to use it in a spar, either because my reflexes weren't fast enough or I don't know, or maybe I didn't even realize I got hit or, or I didn't remember the combination at that time. But during this one particular spar, it was autumn. Like I didn't even think about it. I got a body shot and I did an, uh, an uppercut and I legitimately felt my brain be like, Oh, <laughs> that's when you use it. That's how you use it. It was like yeah. it clicked save and then it just started happening every time. Every time I got a right uppercut, it, I, or sorry, a right body shot, I responded with a right uppercut. So it was cool. It's like yeah. that neural mapping, yeah. right? It's like an action and then an immediate reaction without you even having to have any sort of conscious thought of it. Yeah. So that's cool. How do you deal with uh, self-doubt? In boxing or in, in, general, boxing, in general? In, in, in general, especially boxing, right? You're going into a fight and I feel like, you know, even when I was wrestling, you know, no matter who I wrestled, regardless of skill level, there's always fear. Even with powerlifting, there's always fear and doubt that yeah. creeps in. How do you deal with that? I think fear and doubt are different. The fear is always going to be there and, and I actually interpret fear as positive. Yeah. So I remember there was one powerlifting meet where I was struggling a lot with com competition anxiety. Like I was yeah. having panic attacks in the warm-up room. Yeah. It was awful. So, you know, eventually I, you know, I was seeing a, a psychologist and, and then I started tricking myself to not even feel fear. 
And I remember I went into this one powerlifting meet and I felt nothing. Yeah. I was completely calm and it was the worst. I felt dead. Yeah. What meet was that? I can't remember which one it was, but I didn't do well. I I didn't bomb or anything. It was just it was just a meet. Like it's complete. Yeah. I don't and even just, remember which one it was because it was I was so like such a zombie, so zonked out. And that's when I realized I'm like, man, you need fear. Fear is fear is an emotion just like any other. Yeah. I think we we because of society or culturally we're labeling feelings and emotions as good or bad. Yeah. Right. When in reality, there's no good or bad emotions. They're just emotions. Yep. There's happiness, sadness, fear you know, disappointment, and they all are part of a spectrum of emotions that as humans, we should allow ourselves to feel. Absolutely. Right? It's like the other day I was on my bike and it was, I don't know, 60 degrees plus the wind and I was only wearing a, a t-shirt. I was cold. But the bike ride was amazing. Like it was, it was beautiful. There was like, you know, no clouds. There was no traffic. So the rest of it was amazing. And I remember thinking while I was on the bike, I'm like, fuck, I'm cold. This sucks. I'm so cold. I'm so cold. This sucks. I'm uncomfortable. And then I was like, it's just cold. It doesn't have to be uncomfortable if yeah. I don't want it to be uncomfortable. Right. So I'm just going to yeah. welcome the cold. And then it like didn't bug me. Like yeah. I was cold, but I wasn't perceiving the cold as something negative. And I was able yeah. to enjoy the bike ride. So same thing with fear. You know, you can you can interpret fear or perceive fear as negative and let it choke you in a competition or let it prevent you from doing certain things in your life where you can interpret it as like, man, you're alive. Yes. Like that is a feeling. It's part of being alive and it, you should just use it to as fuel, you know? Exactly. So the fear is always going to be there. The doubt, I think that's something that, yeah, that I, that everybody also has and, and you have to learn how to manage and how to talk to yourself to convince yourself that you're the man. Yeah. Essentially. You seen that video of Conor McGregor talking to himself in the mirror saying, Oh, absolutely. You're the man. <laughs> yep. You're a bad man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think like, uh, and what was your quote? Deceit until you achieve. Deceive until you achieve. Deceive yeah. until you achieve. I was saying that in jest, but yeah. <laughs> it kind of works in this scenario. So it's the same thing. Yeah. With boxing, like I'm coming from the top of a sport to the very bottom of another one. Yeah. Um, but I, one thing that my sports psychologist told me to work on is seeing, seeing the stage of training where I'm at as he pretty much told me to write down and I have, I'm the best boxer in the world. I'm just learning new skills. Yeah. You know, I'm just in, it's, it's just a learning process. It's just a stepping stone, but I'm already the best boxer in the world. Yeah. And it's just kind of like really really believing it and it's not a lie if you believe it right george costanza <laughs> yeah so you're there's always gonna i was telling caesar this the other day as well there's always gonna be a tug of war going on in your head between yeah. like the good side the, the good stuff and the bad stuff right good stuff is like you're the fucking man you yeah. got this you're just you're learning you're improving every time one percent better you're crushing it. and then there's bad stuff which is like why are you even doing this to yourself what makes you think that you can do this you're delusional there's yeah. girls that have been boxing for 17 years and you think you're gonna go in there and beat any of them you have no idea what you're up to you're gonna mess up your face like you know and it's this constant talk of war to so to say that i'm always confident and i never have self-doubt it's a lie. I have many training sessions where I go in and I feel like the man. And then I have many training sessions where I go in and I don't. Yeah. Right. But um, luckily for me, I'm at a point where I, I think I have more more good training sessions, more positive ones, especially more with more positive self-talk and with less doubt than I have negative ones. But 
for those who experience the opposite you, you like you can do something about that and that's what's interesting is that every single person that i talk to who's a professional athlete or somebody trying to be competitive in a sport and i ask them how much of your sport do you think is mental the answer is always like percentage wise the answer is always 90 plus yep. and then i ask them okay so what do you do like what are you doing to work on that nothing yeah it's mind-blowing to me yeah And I don't know if it's because of the stigma of like going to a therapist or or maybe the lack of understanding of what a sports psychologist Does that still exist? What? Stigma of going to a therapist? I feel like it, well, at least now more than ever, it's I think for athletes, more, more yeah. accepted. I, but I think for athletes, yeah. Because they think they're going to go in there and talk about the past and their feelings and their emotions. And that's not what a sports psychologist does. Right, okay. Yeah. A sports psychologist, you don't... Just your sports psychologist doesn't deal with your past. It deals with your present. Yeah. And and the and the challenges that are that you're that are going through your mind right now, or the moment you step into a platform, or the moment you step into the ring, and it's all tools and strategies. So. Yeah, it's super actionable. It's really actionable, and it's it's an it's training. Like for yeah. me, it's training. I get out of so my my sports psychology sessions are Mondays at uh, eight. Yeah. It's so right after I spar, and for me, it's an extension of it's an extension of my spar. Because I go in and I talk about my spar. What did I feel? How, you know, how was my mindset? What do I Seems. feel is my limiting fact? It's all questions. And it's it's not the type of session that you can just like zone out in and like be on your phone. It's like I'm taking notes. I have yeah. like a notebook to write down the things that he's saying and the things that I'm saying that he's helping me uncover. So You think that's what the, their role is? Is to just help you find your own way to those answers? Partially, yeah. Partially, yeah. But his his their role is to give you tools, the best tools and strategies to bulletproof your mind when you're yeah. when you're competing. Yeah. That's what they do. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like that self awareness is so critical. Um, like if you go in and you have a bad session, like asking yourself, okay, what led to that, right? So maybe last night, okay, I, I didn't really. <laughs> You know, I didn't hydrate enough or maybe I watched something that like made me fearful, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it put me in a bad mindset and I had that extra doubt going in. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm very much an empath and mm -hmm. I take on the energy of what's around me. So if I'm around negativity, whether that's like, you know, people freaking out about the news or, you know, whatever it is, like if I'm around that for too long, like that. I, I feel anxious and more doubtful and my mind kind of gets out of control. Whereas if I have these habits and routines in place, right? So I take control of my morning, I wake up and I try to do the same thing every day, whether that's uh, read for a little bit, meditate, go on a walk, be in nature. It sets the tone for that day and I feel like I have more control over that. Same thing at night. I like to have a routine before I go to bed, like an hour, 30 minutes before, you know, um, just to, to relax myself and I might read something uh, to, to be able to calm down and get a, a good night of sleep mm -hmm. and being able to, after like a, a session, ask yourself like, how did that go? Like what things contributed to the success or lack thereof in that session? And once you, you develop that self-awareness, you can come up with a game plan to, to answer it. And that mental side of it, especially in combat sports is so big, Huge. right? Because we're not talking like a, a missed lift. We're talking like in some instances, life or death, Yeah, you know? So it's mm -hmm. a big deal. Yeah, for sure. You know what's interesting that I, okay, so I think I, I disagree slightly with being overly critical and um, introspective about what you've done in the past day or in the day or who you're hanging out with or whatever and how that impacts your session. I know it has, it, it can impact your session, 
But also, have you never been in a situation where you do everything wrong and you have a absolutely like a, a, like an, a sick session? Absolutely, that be an outlier, not the norm. Huh? That would generally be the outlier, not the norm, right? But it's possible. It is very possible. So what, sure. I'm, saying, what I'm saying is, feelings and emotions lie to you yes. all the time. Yeah. So I stopped even thinking about that. I stopped, you know, I, I stopped thinking about how all those things impact my, obviously you do your best, you know, you do your best to get your hours of sleep, to eat enough protein, to hydrate yourself. You do your best, but, but I think it's important to dissociate yourself yes. from like all of these inputs that play a role in your training because, because it's not the only thing, yeah. you know, because those feed into your emotional state more than anything else more than your physiological state because it takes a while for those things to take a toll on your body, right? Like yeah. think about HRV, for yeah. example. It's just, it's just like a measure, uh, unit of measure. It takes a couple weeks for of you fucking up yeah. to actually see a downward trend in your recovery. It's not just one day. Yeah. So if Quick question. So uh, w- with something like HRV where it does maybe take two weeks, uh-huh. you is there sort of like a medium point of introspection that's good and like being critical because say you're using one of those, the HRV for training app, right? Where you put in all those outputs. Did you have alcohol last night? Did you stay up late? Did Mm -hmm. you do X, Y, Z having, you don't think having all that data might be helps you identify a trend like, Oh, I've been trending down over the last two weeks. And coincidentally I had five beers every night. You know what I mean? That yeah, might help sure. you. That might help but you. But those are obvious things, right? Like if well, you, that if one you're, is. No, if you're stressed out, if there's people around you that are negative, if you're not eating enough, if you haven't been eating enough high quality protein, you haven't been having enough micronutrients. Like obviously, though, I, I agree that those are things that contribute and you should definitely address if they start becoming a problem and they start impacting your training and your ability to function in general. Mm-hmm. For sure, think about that. But I think more importantly than that, because it, it does play a role in your emotions, is just like, accepting it because in the end is a matter of acceptance. So it's yeah. accepting and welcoming bad training sessions yeah. for what they are. Yeah, definitely so, learned learned yeah. how to do that in powerlifting. Yeah. I never learned how to do that in powerlifting. No, you didn't. But I'm learning how to do that in. <laughs> Got a few videos showcasing that. What videos? Um, there's one that comes to mind immediately where you uh, missed that lift and you took off your belt in a uh, hybrid 1.0. And you whipped it as hard as you could across the gym and it hit the only thing in the whole gym that could break, which was the automatic wrap roller and it just exploded everywhere. Do you remember that? Yeah. And there was like 20 people in the gym and everyone was just like, (laughs) (laughs) just didn't say a word, just went silent in there. Um, But I've learned how to do that way better in boxing. And no, actually, and to your credit, you you learned how to handle way better in powerlifting too uh, in your last probably like the last year. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, speak to your performance at the U.S. Open mm-hmm. where you missed your first two squats. Mm-hmm. Like that was something that in the past would have crushed. Probably yeah, would have quit. You would have bombed out. Or, yeah. Yeah. Or you would have had a terrible rest of the meet or no matter how well you did in the other two lifts, you would have been upset about missing your your first two. Like mm-hmm. you definitely came a long way there. Steph, you make a really good point on that. Like if you, you get so rigid and I have to have this morning routine and I have to make sure I get this amount of hydration and all these things have to fall into place in order for me to perform. What happens when you don't? Exactly. And mm-hmm. that's where the adaptability component comes into mm-hmm. this. And I was very fortunate because, you know, seeing my brother do that, you have to be very adaptable in the yeah. military. right? Yeah. And that mindset and seeing some of the training 
they would have to do uh, with documentaries and things like that. It's like sometimes shit hits the fan and you aren't going to have your perfect, you'd be able to hit all your macros and all this stuff. Like how are you going to show up? Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's the beauty of competing and in sports in general. It, it teaches you those things. It teaches you how you show up and how you, you know, overcome these, uh, the, the adversity and deal with the self doubt. And you learn so much about yourself when you're in these uncomfortable situations, like going through a big weight cut and being able to, to top, to rehydrate and you're dealing with all the water sloshing around your stomach and you got like an hour and a half before you step on the platform and you're in your warmups and you're hoping you don't vomit everywhere and puke, yeah. be, be another uh highlight reel puking <laughs> on the head referee you know what i mean <laughs> so it's all those different things you know we were at that meet where that girl it, was it rum was it rum nine yeah. it was rum nine yeah you know that video of that blonde chick that Breathe we were there something that was rum nine, wow. the last rum that she I had ended up uh, actually like really capitalizing on that. That video went viral, and she ended up being on a bunch of talk shows. They like <laughs> that's awesome. She got flown out to Hollywood to be on Ridiculousness, I think, and like <laughs> that's awesome. The best probably outcome for a vomit experience you could hope for. <laughs> so I was so I've been focusing on the wrong thing. Breaking world records, isn't it? No, just puke on the head, judge. <laughs> that's my plan. Posted on all the social media platforms. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Instead. Um, Charlie, so you're a PT, but you don't practice. Correct. Why? Uh, I work remotely through Barbell Medicine, so I'm a uh, rehab consultant uh, in their uh, pain and rehab division. Mm-hmm. So that uh, opportunity opened up. Um, I started working with them as an intern second year PT school and uh, was mentored by uh, Michael Ray and Derek Miles. Uh, they, they're extremely good at the, what they do. Um, and they kind of mentored me. I was able to sit in on some of the consults that they would do. And once I graduated, you know, I didn't really know what I was going to do, what setting I was going to work in. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of built up this social media platform. I really, you know, I, I didn't like see it essentially. Like I was going to go the traditional work in your nine to five PT clinic somewhere and COVID hit. And I graduated in May of 2020 pandemic hit in March, 2021, all the shutdowns and things started happening. So a lot of places weren't hiring. So I moved back to my hometown, you know, trying to recalibrate. I was making enough with my personal coaching and stuff to, to survive in that time. And, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out the next step. And, uh, I mean, the idea, you know, I started taking on, uh, clients through the, the rehab side, barbell medicine, and that started to pick up and, uh, and I started working on the performance side. So that, uh, you know, that's been very lucrative and it continues to grow. And I, I love what I do. I work remotely. Um, I can set my own schedule and the autonomy part is huge mm-hmm. for me. And that's, you know, I, I get to, uh, basically treat how I want to treat, you know? Um, and, and I've always enjoyed working with people, um, and, and see, like taking someone who, who comes in on the initial consultation, they're very down in the dumps. They just got injured and you, you walk them through this process and you see them going, uh, I have one client, uh, she went, uh, on her, uh, first meeting quite some time and went nine for nine and hit PRs on all of her lifts and seeing that like joy and happiness, like that's priceless, you know, and this is what I enjoy doing when I'm passionate about, um, how does it work doing PT online and not touching people? Like, don't you need to like be hands on? 
No. <laughs> no. That's that was a loaded question. <laughs> we'll leave it at uh no on that one. A uh, very loaded question for sure, but um yeah, I mean there's uh, Wait, is in manual therapy the whole thing? For for some people. I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean manual therapy it's it's helpful for some people, not so much for others. How but, so? Uh <laughs> put me on the spot. <laughs> um I feel like a lot of uh, different narratives get thrown around about what it does. And I mean, there's a lot of research that contradicts a lot of that, those narratives. And some of them can be very harmful. I wrote up a, a recent article on low back pain and core stability, a very short piece, like two or three minutes um, on the Barbell Medicine website. Uh, and one of the papers, they, they interviewed uh, folks who are patients with chronic low back pain who went to... Uh, different healthcare providers and wanted to know some of the things they've been told about their low back pain. And, uh, one of the participants had been told, you know, her core is too weak and, and fragile and she was pregnant at the time. So she got an abortion <gasps> because she Jeez. felt like she couldn't carry the baby. Oh my God. That's crazy. Don't get me wrong. The, 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 the different core stability, quote unquote exercise, there's nothing wrong with those, right? If you mm-hmm. have someone who's very fearful of movement, uh, they're afraid to bend over or pick something up, like get, and they don't exercise. Those are great entry points, right? It's the narratives that get surrounded around a lot of these manual type things, or even like with exercise in that example, that can be very harmful to but people. I even think that the word stability is a problem. What's like, that? I even think yeah. that the word stability is a problem. Like it's not an instability issue. Her yeah. and Jordan and Shallow have had a five-year debate about stability. <laughs> with back pain especially. Uh-huh. But with everything really. Um, yeah, it doesn't... I think the fact that you're doing core exercises is is not that the benefits is not that it's increasing the stability of the core. It's just the fact that you're doing exercise. Yeah. That you're doing something. Yes. That's what helps. The problem is if you are telling somebody that that if you're telling somebody that they need to do stability exercises, you're implying that they're unstable. You're implying that they're weak. You're implying that they're fragile, yeah. even if you don't say it. So you just have to. As clinicians, be super, super careful with your language, especially oh around God. people who don't who don't understand yeah. what those things really mean. That's and huge. also, if as a clinician you believe that the issue is is instability is coming from an instability, that is also going to limit your the exercises that you're going to give a person, and you're then you're you're limiting you're limiting their movement options, and you're limiting maybe movements that they would have enjoyed a lot more than a bird dog, a dead bug, and a side plank, right? Like this person might have enjoyed more doing a very light suitcase carry or, I don't mm-hmm. know, or like going uphill somewhere or going downhill or p- pushing a sled. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there's so many other movements that you can do that they might have enjoyed and, and stayed more consistent with rather than that 30-second plank. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if as a clinician you already have that bias that you need to prescribe core stability exercises for an unstable spine for somebody with back pain, that's already limiting in and of itself because you're only choosing from like a very small category of exercises. You're not giving the patient enough options. Do you think, the? I mean, we, Charlie and I were speaking about this earlier a little bit about how it's important to have people like you guys who sort of bridge the gap between what you're taught in school and, you know, you have a chapter in your book, right? From bird dogs to, to, dead, de- to, deadlifts. to deadlifts or dead bugs to deadlifts. Yeah. And it's like so many PTs are just equipped with that. Those first three things. Do your 
bird dogs and whatever. And then it's like, okay, but I used to squat 700 pounds yep. and there's gotta be a few steps in between the bird dog <laughs> and that. So Wait, you know, what is it? Yeah. What is that? You know? Yeah. And if, if, if they're like, if students coming out of PT school are not doing their, their own research or they're not exercising themselves, I think it's really tough for them to even understand because here's the thing, and, and I think you're, you'd agree with me on this. I think PT school prepares you really well for post-op patients, you know? Yeah. In the sense, like, when you're doing your eval, like, you know you know what not to do yeah. to not put the person in a compromised position or to not make a person worse, especially if it's somebody post, uh, post-op. But when it comes to active people who have a, an injury, like, either it's an overuse injury or an acute injury... The process is very different and there's many things that might work and there's many things that you can do without harming the person. So if you stay too close to that, to those guidelines that you get taught in PT school, I don't like it's, it's counterproductive for the patient. You're not, you're not providing the best, the best care for that person. And I think what happens is that, and I experienced this when I was in, in, in practice during uh, my rotations was that. I I felt like I there was a gap in my knowledge between everything that I was learning in school and what I was seeing in front of me, yeah. mainly because a lot of the things that that I was trying to apply to the person in front of me didn't they didn't work. Like it didn't it wasn't how it was being taught. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to read more and learn more, but I was so consumed by spending so many hours in the clinic than having to spend an, an extra couple hours just writing notes. Yeah. And then it's already 7 p.m. and I also have to train. So I get home at 9.30 at 10 and then I have yep. to sleep and do it all over again. So I had no time to do research. So that's where we come in. That's where, uh, you know, those lit reviews by Barbell Medicine or even by uh, Eric Helms and yeah, them, those absolutely. come in super handy. People like us that have more free time that we don't have to be uh, confined to a clinic and confined to like strict rules and treatment guidelines, yeah. we can open up their eyes and tell them, Hey, look, this is what more, the more recent, uh, literature says, these are all the things that we can actually do. This is what we were doing and it doesn't work that way. Why don't you try this? So absolutely. I think that us and being strength coaches, cause I think that also helps yeah. a ton because there's a difference between there shouldn't be, but I guess rehab is when you're treating somebody post-op and then you guys should all DPTs should also be strength, strength coaches. coaches. I agree, hundred yeah. percent. That should be part of the curriculum. hundred percent. So rehab is for post op, and then anything else that's not post op is strength and conditioning. Like that's the mindset that it should be. Like the fact that, and I think you struggled with this with your classmates as well. Was, I mean, my classmates had no idea how to do a squat. My classmates came. Not all of them, but no, a, a, most good, por- of a them, good portion of, a, of them. A, the majority of them, or they would come to my gym and they wouldn't, they wouldn't even know what a machine is called. Yeah. In the gym or what or, it's for. Or what it's I was for. pointing out to him earlier. Yeah. I used the example of the uh, T-bar row, right? Where, you know, if you have a basic understanding of training, you can look at that machine and say, oh, that's obviously a machine that's going to be used for some sort of row, you know? But we had people or students from her class, like these are third year students at this point? No, first year students. No, yeah. was it? Yeah, first year. Okay. But either way, who just you know, smart enough to get into the school and, you know, be in this field and just, you know, didn't even know. But again, it's the gap between theory and practice because by that time we had taken already anatomy. So we understood, we, we knew which muscles we have, where they originate, where they insert and what what their action is in theory. 
but it's very different when you're looking at it from heat, you know, on a piece of paper versus like when you're actually seeing a person move and you're having to figure it out. And but yeah, I mean, to me, it was mind blowing. The fact that they they couldn't put two and two together when you see someone do a row. How can you not understand that the muscles that are active are your lats and your biceps mainly and your rhomboids and your upper back muscles? You know what I mean? Yeah. And they struggled putting putting two and two together. When did you start lifting? I started lifting when I was 20. Yeah, weightlifting. Okay. How'd you get Through into CrossFit. it? Through CrossFit. The CrossFit? Yeah. And again, it found me. My coach, Camilo, mm-hmm. came into a CrossFit gym and he's like, don't do it. You're not doing He's Cuban. No, don't do any more CrossFit. And I'm like, why? He's like, I'm going to make your world champion. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, okay, that sounds pretty cool. Sounds <laughs> a lot cooler than doing CrossFit. So I'm in. Yeah, he coached me for free for like five years. Every day at 6 a.m., I would have my... I'd, uh, handwritten training plan in my phone. Like he would take a picture of like yeah. a notebook. He has like books of my training every morning. That's he would awesome. send it at 6 a.m. And then around like two or three, he would send the afternoon session and he would prescribe exact numbers. Like he knew exactly what my strict press was, push press, power clean, full clean, deadlift, deadlift from the blocks, deadlift from a fucking deficit. Uh, he knew every single one of my numbers. That was the exact same as my weightlifting coach. And he would memorize Steve, all of the other athletes He knew everything too. that we could do, all the other athletes. And the program would be like three sets of four at 53 kilos, five sets of one at 82. That's like right it, was it was so precise and it was exact, like you couldn't have done anymore. It's actually yeah. an amazing way to train. Like yeah. the way we would, we would show up to training training was from seven to 11 and uh first thing you do you'd walk in hi steve he's like he'd basically do like an assessment how do you feel you know uh how have you what were the last sets of squat you did last time you know get all that information uh even things like stress you would talk about within it like this is an old world guy this is like a seven 65 70 year old guy with no no education all just practical uh application and, uh, you know, he would use that information to give you in real time what your training was going to be like for that day. And he did it for everyone, like you said. And it's like, it was really cool, I think, in a formative formative years of my training to be able to have access to that. Yeah. Like something so hands-on. Because I feel like, although training is so much more accessible nowadays uh, through all of the online platforms and stuff, uh, it, it's really tough to go f- to find people like that, you know, Yeah. Uh, or, or a team like that. Like to even just find a team to train with is really hard now. So yeah. mm-hmm. we were lucky, but I didn't go the CrossFit route. Like you, I was a purist. We thought CrossFit was lame. <laughs> we thought powerlifters were fat. We Wait, were just... you did CrossFit too? No, no, no. Are no. you talking about me? No, no, just me, just me in general, our mindset. We were just like such elitist pricks. Nice. <laughs> Uh-huh. We didn't realize that every other sport thought the exact same way. Just about us. <laughs> when did you switch over to powerlifting? Um, when I got kicked out of school. Like that's when I made the switch. I was because, like I said, it was way too mind consuming for the time of my life that I was in, and I was like, mm-hmm. I'm gonna put this on hold. I'm gonna still do snatch clean jerk two or three times a week or whenever I feel like it. I think gonna- you could have back all the way to two and then when you're doing powerlifting it means one uh-huh maybe and then zero but mm-hmm. then yeah and then i just started doubling up on on strength and then i was just maxing out snatch clean and jerk every once in a while this no after, like, after the powerlifting meets so it'd be like oh, i yeah. comp- i do a th- four month long peaking uh or powerlifting prep cycle 
I would compete. And then one or two weeks later, I would max out snatch clean and jerk and absolutely crush it. Oh my God. I got so strong. Mm-hmm. I got so strong. I put like, I put like 15 kilos in my clean. I cleaned 120. It seems so obvious. Like, to be like, huh, weird. When you get stronger, you can do more in weightlifting. Yeah. You know, but it's it it's really contrary to the way programming is done in North American yeah. and Western weightlifting. You know, it's like everyone wants to do the Bulgarian method, but without drugs. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, you can't really do that. <laughs> you can't just max out a snatch and clean and jerk every day, you know? You'll make it. It's like you're, you're battling for one kilo of progress in the snatch where it's like you could put... 30 kilos on your back squat in like a year and then that's going to do a lot more for your you know for your snatching clean and jerk yeah by far yeah um okay this is a good point to stop yeah because i gotta go you gotta go yeah you gotta go so much charlie of course where can people find you you can find me uh charlie underscore barbell medicine on instagram and uh yeah anything else uh that's the main platform i use uh, yeah Amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys for having me. I'm looking forward to a week of uh, Miami shenanigans. Yeah, we're going to get after it. (laughs) We're going to take him to the uh, Russian bathhouse. Oh, that's the spot. (laughs) Yeah. That's a spot. That's part of the full Miami experience. So let's do it. Okay. Thank you.